We're making our trek through the pastoral epistles, setting ourselves on a course we trust to have a biblical expectation for the church, for leadership within the church, for relationships within the church, all of the elements of what we find in these pastoral epistles. Of course, we know now that they are called the pastoral epistles because they were written to specific individuals who were pastoring. Two of them are to Timothy, and one is to Titus. Both were team members of Paul, and uh, Paul was the discipler of these two young men. Both have been placed in a very difficult situation. Titus is at Crete, a little island, and he is serving the church there on Crete. And Timothy has been placed as the pastor at Ephesus and has been struggling in his role there as the leader because false teaching had crept into the church. Paul sent him there. He delegated that responsibility to Timothy. He was not welcomed. They didn't call and ask Paul, uh, can you send us uh, the best and the brightest, the cream of the crop, to come and be our, our pastor, our young pastor? Paul sent Timothy. He was probably unwelcome by many of the older elders who had fallen into this false teaching. And he has been battling and struggling in boldness. And we're going to see that throughout the remainder of this letter and into 2 Timothy as well. These are some of the latest letters in Paul's life. In fact, 2 Timothy is the last known epistle that Paul wrote. And it's in 2 Timothy that we find Paul telling his young protege that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished his course. And he was expecting for a very immediate entry into the kingdom. He was expecting to see his Lord very soon. And uh, we don't know exactly how much longer Paul lived, but these are definitely near the end of his life. So the collective ministry wisdom that Paul has gleaned under the moving of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what Peter tells us happened in inspiration. And the product is an inspired, infallible, inerrant, without error, and without deception. It is perfect in its final form. And so we have before us the inspired word of God as penned by the Apostle and his team under the leadership and movement of the Holy Spirit, under the direct supervision of the Holy Spirit. Now we have jumped into chapter 6, and uh, we are finishing out this epistle. Last week we spent time in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 6, really the beginning, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, connected, if you remember, to the end of chapter 5 really kind of culminated the relationships within the church. Speaking of the slaves' relationship to their masters, both those masters that knew the Lord and fellowshiped with their slaves in the body, which must have been a very difficult social barrier, and those slaves that had masters that did not know the Lord and their response to those unbelieving masters. Both of those were addressed in verses 1 and 2. And then the bridge is the final phrase of, of verse 2, teach and urge these things, that is, what is to come. And now Paul launches into the final section of this epistle. He made one last swipe, if you will, last week in verses 3 through 5 at these false teachers. He has repeatedly come back to attack their motive, their character, their message, all that they encompass in their teaching that is distracting God's people from the truth. Last week we saw how seriously Paul takes false teachers. If you remember, 
the harsh language that we found in verse 4 as a description. If anyone is teaching a different doctrine, verse 3 says, here's the description, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an arrogant ignoramus, was a word that one commenter used. So Paul is very strong in his language, and he makes his final uh, his final attempt to solidify the confidence of Timothy in the face of false teaching. He gives one other and final description of these false teachers in verse 5. He says that there is all kinds of evil that flows from these men and their teaching, constant friction, those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then he says this little clause at the end of verse 5, which really connects us to what we'll find in verses 6 through 10 as we study this evening. That final phrase is, imagining, that is the false teachers, imagined that godliness is a means of gain. There was greed inherent in the false teachers, and that hasn't changed at all. Those who would teach a false gospel imagine that their proposed quote-unquote godliness is an opportunity for them to receive gain. That is, physical gain, wealth accumulation of money and of possession. And it's right on the heels of that phrase that we come now to verse 6, and we'll look this evening at verses 6 through 10. Let's read them together uh, just to be familiar with what we'll find here in verses 6 through 10. Now there is great gain in godliness, Paul says, with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. Now, next week we'll begin in in verse 11 of chapter 6, and we'll go all the way through to verse 16, and we'll see final address, the final address of the apostle to his young protege, and he calls him the man of God. And then the conclusion of the letter will come back to this issue of contentment. It will come back to this issue of wealth. And Paul will, almost as if he's concluding the letter, he writes his final paragraph to Timothy, and then he says in his mind, you know what? We need to make sure that those who are rich are warned as well. Because really what we're going to look at in verses 6 through 10 deal with those who are not assumed to be rich. Though we'll find that really... The standard of living is not the issue in verses 6 through 10. But it is primarily focused on those who are not assumed to be rich. Then he concludes with his, his dissertation here in, in verse 11 to 16 to the man of God. And then we will come back and we'll conclude the letter with a brief commendation, a brief call to purity on the part of those who are rich within the church. Okay? That's what's coming up. And by way of review, last week... We looked at the false teachers, and we realized that false teachers can be identified. They can be identified. There is a standard by which 
teaching must be measured. Not only can they be identified, they must be identified, and they must be dealt with within the church. So false teaching is serious, and doctrine is important to the ministry of the church. Tonight we're going to look at two relationships. If you're taking notes, there's going to be two relationships of Christians, both to spiritual and physical wealth. There are two relationships that are outlined here in verses 6 through 10 of the believer to gain, both in the spiritual sense and in the physical sense. Paul, being the master of words like he is, flawlessly, seamlessly moves us from the folly of the false teachers to the reality that is found in the New Testament. He goes straight from the cockamamie idea, the imagining, the fantasy of the false teacher, that godliness is a means of gain, that it's a means of wealth. He seamlessly transitions to say, but godliness is a means of gain. It is, in fact, a means to a gain, but not the gain that the false teachers desired. This is a gain that comes only when it is accompaniment, accompanied, godliness is accompanied by contentment. And that's what we'll look at first tonight. So first relationship is the gain of the godly Christian or the wealth of the godly Christian. And then the second relationship is the pain of the greedy Christian. Okay, these are the situations of life. These are relationships of Christians to wealth. There is the gain, there is the wealth, there is the benefit and success of godly Christians, and there is the pain of those who are greedy and who are found within the church. And that is the context in which Paul is speaking. So we begin with verses 6 through 8, and the gain, the true gain, that is found in godly Christians. Now there is great gain. But it's only found in one sphere. The little word in is the sphere in which gain is found in godliness with contentment. The two components. Godliness matched with contentment does result in gain. But of course, Paul is not speaking here of accumulation of physical wealth, as he will show us in his logic in the remaining verses. He is speaking here of the spiritual gain, of the spiritual wealth of those who are godly and content. So the false teachers in verses 3 through 5 thought that godliness was an opportunity for wealth accumulation. And Paul here says with irony, with satire, it is if it comes with contentment. It is a means of gain, just not the gain that the false teachers desired. The wealth of the godly is only found within the sphere of contentment. You say, how do we know this? Well, there, this isn't the only passage in our New Testaments that shows us this reality in the Apostle Paul's life and in his theology. If we go back to the book of Philippians, you just flip back a couple pages to the letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, final chapter. Paul says something very similar. He articulates a very similar pattern in his thinking. Verse 10, we'll begin there, says in verse 10 of chapter 4 in Philippians, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now I am speaking of being in need. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, 
I know how to be how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned that the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is that secret? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ is the secret to Paul's contentment. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, back in our Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which comes directly after the Proverbs. So go to the Proverbs and hang a right, a couple pages. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, or you can just listen along as I read from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 says, this proverb, this truth statement, this wisdom statement, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, but he who loves wealth with his income, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity, that is, it's empty. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So there's a positive and a negative illustration. Positive in the Apostle Paul's life that contentment had been learned because of Christ. Negative illustration that we're all too familiar with in our American culture. That those who love and pursue wealth will never be satisfied with the wealth they pursue. Never. It is empty. At the end of the day, it will never produce the contentment, the happiness that they so long for. Now, it's an interesting word used here back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. And I want to just touch on it for a moment. Only when there is something particularly important to us or fascinating do I want to point out words uh, from an original standpoint. Verse 6 has the word contentment. And we're very familiar with the word contentment. But contentment is an English translation of an original Greek word. And that Greek word really, if we're... If we break that apart and just are raw and literal with that word, it really means self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. And you say, your alarms are going off right here and right now. Right? There is gain. It only comes with godliness that is matched with self-sufficiency. That flies in the face of the gospel, does it not? That flies in the face of the poverty in spirit that is to be the trademark of the kingdom citizen. We find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The idea here is one that is borrowed from the Stoics of this time period. And it is not the idea of a negative self-sufficiency that reeks of pride and arrogance and confidence in and of myself. But rather, this is why contentment is a good translation for us, rather it is a positive description of one who is contained. There is a satisfaction with the current situation. I am sufficiently cared for in my present reality. I am self-sufficient. But for the believer, there is only one reason that we are ever contained within an environment with contentment, with satisfaction, with sufficiency. And our sufficiency is drawn back to what we read in Philippians chapter 4. The secret to contentment to being satisfied within the sphere of my own existence that is not always pursuing what the other person has, what the other company is doing, what the other sales member is accomplishing. The only reason that that is a reality of our lives is because we have come to the reality, the truth, that Christ is sufficient. And I can do all things through Him 
Paul says, that is, all things, this is a good opportunity for us to check our context, right? We use that verse a lot. I can do all things through him. I can do all things. What are the all things that Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4? The all things that Paul is directly talking about are living lowly or living with gain. I can do either one. I can live in any circumstance. Why? Because I am in Christ. In Him, I can do all things. I can live with nothing, and I can live with abundance. Because Christ is sufficient. Therefore, I am satisfied with the circumstance that He has chosen for me. Therefore, this word is translated contentment. Because that's the English word that best gives us this idea. We would be so hung up with self-sufficiency. And yet that is the concept that we find here. One who is satisfied in his present state. Satisfied with what he has accumulated. And that only comes through Christ. And so the commentators, John Stott, R. Kent Hughes, they all borrow from one another and speak not of self-sufficiency but of Christ's sufficiency. What is contentment? It is the reality in the mindset of the believer that Christ is sufficient. Whether I am poor, whether I am rich, whether I am somewhere in the middle, by whatever standard I am measuring myself, I am satisfied in Christ. That is the means of great gain spiritually. There's those people who think God's thoughts after Him that are godly and who have contentment that will understand and will gain in the spiritual sense. So there's the gain of the godly Christian. Now, the logic that Paul uses in verses 7 and 8 further explains what he's talking about. He's going to further explain for us what he has said in verse 6. And so we have the little word for, which is going to be a further explanation. For, here's the reasoning why verse 6 is true. Why would it be great gain for us to live with contentment and godliness? Well, it only is logical for the believer. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So here's the first, first level of Paul's logic in describing for the believers and for Timothy why contentment was such a, an important trait in the Christian life. Greed, discontentment, desire for more and more and more is illogical. It is irrational for the believer. Why? Because the believer is well aware that they brought nothing into this life and that this life will end and they will take nothing with them. And so there comes a contentment. There comes a settledness. There comes a satisfaction with the circumstance in which the Lord has placed you. Because you realize that what you have gained here in a temporal sense is nothing short of a management opportunity for you. You are stewarding what belongs to God, and you will not take it with you. The story is told about John D. Rockefeller. At one time, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He has since lost all that wealth because he died. But when he died, an aide was asked, his aide was asked, how much did... Rockefeller leave behind. How much was he worth? And the aide, not thinking, I'm sure, 
clearly, but when the question was posed to the aide, how much did he leave behind, his quick answer was, all of it. He left it all. It's all still here. All the life pursuit of money. Rockefeller was heard to have said, how much money will make you happy? And he always answered the same way, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And when he died, none of it, none of it went with him. And so the believer understands this reality, understands what Job understood. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. We come in empty-handed, and you will leave empty-handed. And so why would we live our lives like a false teacher who is greedy for gain, for possession? Why would we live in such a way when we know that, first of all, we are not to be living for here and now, but for eternity? And we also know that nothing that we gain here, in a physical sense, will go with us. There's a second level to this logic, and it comes in verse 8. Further explanation. Not only do we understand that nothing here has come in with us and nothing will go with us, but if we have food and covering, is probably a better translation than clothing, food and shelter is a good translation, with these we will be content. Why? Because the Christian at his core is a minimalist. He does not live for his existence on this earth. He's just a pilgrim passing through. When was the last time you saw a pilgrim who was setting up shop and gathering as many things as they could for their journey through the wilderness? <clears throat> you won't believe the sweet kitchenware I got for our trip through the Oregon Trail. I mean, it just didn't happen. It's a minimalist approach. It's a wartime approach. We have a very short time to live here. Therefore, our desire is not to accumulate all that we can here when eternity is coming. The believer understands the great gain that comes from godliness matched with contentment. Contentment being understood as Christ's sufficiency. Verse 8 tells us that if we have food and clothing, we're fine. We're satisfied. Food and shelter. Not that if you have clothes on your back, but you have no shelter that you should be feeling like things are going well. The Lord has promised to cover you, to shelter you, to provide food and clothing. In fact, we go back to chapter 11 of Luke. We'll see our Lord Jesus speaking about this very promise. Luke chapter 11. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 12. And verse 27. Luke chapter 12 and verse 27 says, Consider the lilies, the flowers, how they grow. They don't work. They neither toil nor spin. They don't do anything. They just sprout up and sit there. <clears throat> so consider these lilies. Think about them. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So these lilies who have no work, no value, no effort, are arrayed with such beauty and creativity that they eclipse Solomon in all of his glory, the richest and wisest man to date. But if God so clothes the grass, some little plant that grows up, if he takes this much care in a, in a grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This is the promise of the Christian life. This is the basis of contentment. If I have food, if I have shelter, clothing, if I've covered, then I am content. Because I do not live my life as if here and now is all there is. Rather, I focus my attention on things above. I focus my attention and my energy and my strength and my stewardship on the kingdom. Practically, let me recommend a book for you. If you want to read more about this and you want to study this, just a little tiny book that will do a, a real boost for your reading, uh, your reading uh, ego. All right? If you struggle with reading, why don't you pick up the book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. It's probably, I don't know, 50 pages, 80 pages, but it's one of those little books, little Prayer of Jabez style books that you feel really good. You can breeze through that thing and read it very quickly. The treasure principle falls directly in line with what we've just read and what we're studying in 1 Timothy 6. The treasure principle is you cannot take wealth with you, but you can send it on ahead. Okay, So you can utilize what has been entrusted to you as a manager of all that God owns, whatever it is that he has entrusted you, you can utilize for his kingdom by pouring it into the lives of other people, other eternal souls that will spend an eternity either in heaven or in hell. Treasure principle, just a word, a side note, a recommendation for you. Okay, so this is the gain of the godly Christian. This is true gain, and it comes from godliness with contentment. It is the spiritual benefit of knowing that you brought nothing into the world, that you'll take nothing out, and that you can be satisfied in Christ with just the basic necessities that he has promised to provide for you. This was Paul's testimony, and this has been the testimony of saints throughout the history of the church. That brings us then to the most well-known section here, and the most potent, and that is the pain of the greedy Christian. What is the opposite? What is the contrast to this gain of godly Christians? It is the pain of greedy Christians. Somehow we need to figure out how to use pain and gain and rework the phrase, no pain, no gain. Uh, that is not the case here. The pain of the greedy Christian will not result in gain. It will result in simple destitution when it speaks of spiritual matters. And we start in verse 9 with the pain of the greedy Christian. What is the opposite of contentment? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's look just quickly here at the pain of greedy Christianity. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Let's look at the, the consequences of desiring to be rich. Folks, I don't need to emphasize the universal pressure that is on you to live your life desiring to be rich in a worldly sense. It's everywhere around you. 
almost every television commercial is about getting it and getting it now. We have a billion-dollar industry that's called credit cards. It is so that you can get things that you can't afford. That's why it exists. It preys on the natural desire to have more than what God has given you in the circumstances of your life. Look at the consequences of a desire to be rich, to be marked by greed. You fall into temptation. There is a falling into temptation. There is endless numbers of temptations that that are produced by this desire to be rich. It leads to more sin. Not only that, it's a trap. It's a snare. As you pursue and desire to be rich, look at riches like it's a piece of cheese. Little rabbits running through the woods. Can't figure out why there's a piece of cheese right between those two little twigs that are set up, stuck in the ground. It's interesting. Really want to eat that cheese? That carrot, maybe rabbits don't eat cheese, I don't know. Carrot, rats eat cheese, rabbits eat carrots. So you got a little carrot there, okay? Some cheese on the carrot, it's a really nice little dish. Right there in the woods, here comes your little rabbit. He's running through the woods and he, whoa, look over there. There's those two little sticks, surely that means nothing to me. And one of them's kind of just barely holding on this little slant. That's got to be just the way it was grown. So I'm going to go, and my desire is going to lead me, that little rabbit's instinctive desire for food is going to lead him to stick his head right through that little twine loop. I'm sorry for those of you who are just animal lovers. This is ruining your evening. And the snare is triggered. And a little rabbit has breathed his last because the snare has ended his life. Why? Because he desired... He could not stop his desire, and he ran headlong into the trap, into the snare. The Word of God says that the greedy Christian, the desire to be rich, not only is, a, is leading to temptation, it will not lead to falling into temptation only, but it will also lead to a trap. It is a deception. It is a trap to follow and desire riches. Why? Well, because of what he just got done saying in verse 7 and 8. You're not taking it with you. It will bring you no joy. It will never never satisfy you. And therefore, to pursue it and to desire it is to waste your life. It's a trap. It's the American trap. That's what we should rename the American dream. It's the American trap. It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. Your nice home with a white picket fence, two vehicles, one SUV... It doesn't satisfy. So it becomes a snare. Those who desire to be rich, who live their life for those ends, will be led directly into the snare, just like a little animal going for what seems to be a too-good-to-be-true free meal. Not only that, but a desire to be rich leads not just to temptation, not just to a trap, but it leads to the rich The desire to be rich leads to ruin and destruction. Look at the end of verse 9. Into many senseless, mindless, reasonless, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
The pursuit of riches will be mindless and it will be harmful and it will lead to further desires that will plunge people. That is such a, such a colorful word. Plunge them into ruin. They'll be covered in ruin. They'll have plunged into it and destruction. Folks, I know that we like to think always, when we come to our scriptures, a lot of times our temptation is to think of others, right? First. And we start thinking in terms of those who desire riches being led into destructive desire that plunges them into ruin. And what comes to mind? I'll tell you what comes to mind to me. Skid Row in L.A., or I'm sure, though I haven't been there, many, many people along the strip in Las Vegas who represent the end, the extreme, of what verse 9 is telling us. That a desire for riches will only lead to destruction and ruin. But Paul here is speaking in context not to Skid Row in L.A. He's not speaking to those who gambled their existence away and who have been ruined by Las Vegas, he's speaking to those at Ephesus within the local body who are desiring to be rich. It is their pursuit, it is their drive, it is their goal, and he is speaking spiritually to them that it will lead them to desires that will ruin them. It will destroy them. Verse 10 will tell us it will lead them away from the gospel because their life will be directed and desiring something that is contrary to the message of Jesus Christ. So this is the pain of the greedy Christian. Why? Why is this the reality? Well, verse 10 describes or answers the question of why. Why is it that those who desire to be rich will fall into these various serious situations? Temptation, snare, and desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Well, very simple. Verse 10 says, for or because, here's the answer to the why question, the love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's so familiar to us. In fact, probably it's been abbreviated and misused by many people. But the root system, the root idea, is a powerful one. The root of all kinds of evil, evil being the fruit that is born in the life, if you trace that back through the tree down into the root system, you will find to a number of evils on the outside, the root problem is a love and a craving for money. Folks, that's just what the Word of God tells us. And we need to do a gut check before the Word tonight. How much of the evil fruit that we see borne out in our lives is due to our love and desire for riches? Just by way of application, understand that the love of money is not concerned with your social class in this world. The love of money touches both the poor, the middle class, and the wealthy. In fact, some of the poorest people are those who love money most. 
and who desire it more than any others. Some of the richest people are those who care the least about what they have. So understand that this verse is not, is not directed at any group of people, any social class. It's simply declaring to you that if your desire, whether you are rich or poor or somewhere in between, if your desire is to be rich and your affection is set on money, then get ready to see the fruit of evil because it is the root of all kinds of evil. And then the saddest explanation in verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered away, they've meandered off the path from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The idea here is someone taking a spear and piercing themselves. It's a gruesome picture. Piercing themselves with many pangs. This is the description that Paul gives for the greedy within the church. The love of money has obviously led even teacher leaders within Ephesus away from the faith. And now they are so far off path that they think that godliness is a means for their wealth. In verse 5. So there's the true gain of the godly Christian, and that is godliness matched with contentment is rewarded with spiritual gain, spiritual blessing, spiritual wealth before God. And there is the tremendous pain of those who will live their lives marked by greed. You say, so what? At the end of the day, so what? Let me give you a couple ideas. Contentment is a theological issue for the Christian. Okay? Understand that from 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're struggling with contentment. This is a real problem, right? This is real life. Just be open-ended here. Contentment is a problem, and we struggle with it. We live in a society that breeds discontentment. There's a little phrase that Renee and I still use when when we're speaking about contentment, and comparison kills contentment. Comparison kills contentment, right? And your society teaches you to compare yourself and to judge others as the value system of how you're doing in the world. When you're struggling with discontentment or you're struggling to be content in the circumstances that Christ has placed you in and struggling to focus on His sufficiency in all things, whether rich or poor, understand that it is first and foremost a theological problem. That is, it is a view of God problem. Not unlike this morning. Contentment is not something that changes because of your environment. Contentment does not change because of education. Contentment certainly does not change because of possession. We talked about Christmas this morning. (coughs) And I remember distinctly as a child, not understanding the theology of what what I was experiencing, but realizing within a half an hour after opening presents on Christmas morning, that it didn't live up to the hype. It just didn't live up to the hype. I mean, I got a new polo shirt for my aunt. It was too short. It was mint green. I got a remote control car, but you know what? My parents weren't very wealthy, so they went to Walmart and got me the remote control car, but I knew that Josh, my friend at school, his parents went to Radio Shack and got him the, like, $300 car that, like, drives itself, you know, can take people to work, those kind of remote control cars. I remember distinctly thinking, this is kind of a letdown. 
After all the hype and all the desire and all the, the focus and the meditation on those gifts that were wrapped, at the end of the day, they didn't do it. It didn't work. I'm still the same person. I just have a few more things. That's because contentment is a theological issue. It's a heart problem. We've got to address it as such. Secondly, contentment is not a struggle for the poor or the rich exclusively. We already talked about this. But contentment is not concerned when it strikes you. Discontentment is not concerned with your social class. Those who are rich may desire to be richer. Those who are poor may desire to be rich. Those who are in the middle may desire to be rich. Discontentment strikes in spite of your current situation. Thirdly, Greed and the love of money is a universal temptation. It is not gender specific. It is not ethnic specific. It is not social class or life circumstance specific. And then number four and finally and most importantly, Christ is sufficient for your entire peace and joy in this life. Christ is the basis of contentment. You've met people that have everything this world has to offer and are completely satisfied and speak as freely as they can about their contentment in Christ. You've met other people that have very little as far as the world standard goes. And yet they are perfectly content because they know that they are satisfied with Christ. He is sufficient. So you want to fight the desire to be rich in a culture that's telling you it's the highest virtue? You want to fight the love of money, which ends up being the root of all kinds of evils? Focus your heart and your attention and your devotions on the sufficiency of Christ. Go to the example of the Apostle Paul. Go to the example of those who had everything stripped away. Go to Ecclesiastes and realize that under the sun, everything is vanity. Why? Because you were never created to live a life of under the sun. You have always been created to live a life that was focused on eternity and above the sun, if you will, on God and worshiping Him. And so Solomon, in all of his wisdom, with all of his wealth, at the end of his life, he understood that life under the sun is empty unless it is lived for what is beyond the sun. Focus on it. Read it. Meditate upon it. So that whatever your circumstance, you can join the Apostle Paul in saying, I can be content. Why? Because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ is sufficient. This is an issue within our culture that we could spend weeks talking about, meditating on. And I trust that though we only spend one evening and just a few moments on one paragraph, that these gains for those who are godly and content and the pain and the anguish of those who live their lives pursuing temporal riches will sit heavy on your hearts. Give you fuel to meditate on the Word of God day and night throughout this week so that we might be people who reflect the sufficiency of our Christ because of the way we live. One of your greatest opportunities for testimony and for sharing the gospel in your American culture 
is your contentment. Because you live in a world that is completely discontent. And your satisfaction, they won't know how to describe it. They may say you're easygoing, you're peaceful. You have some, something is different about you. And it would be an opportunity for you to say, my Christ, my Messiah is sufficient. I'll tell you why I'm different. I'll tell you what happened. I was living my life in the rat race of the American dream, pursuing my own ends, pursuing my own advancement, pursuing my own possessions, and God, in His mercy and grace, stepped in and saved me for myself. And now I know that He is sufficient. No matter what my life circumstance, I am content.